right, everybody. Thank you for joining us as always. This has been a great year for the markets. And we've been doing these spaces, specifically those of FOMC, pretty much every month. And we're really excited to round up the final Twitter space this year with our favorite people on the planet. So happy December to everybody. We got two more weeks left in the year. Now, before we get started, as those who frequent our spaces know, I like to keep these panels super open for discussion. So kind of as we go along, panelists, as always, you know the drill. Feel free to discuss openly. Add any thoughts you may have on any given topic we might touch on. Only request, as always, is that you use your little Twitter space emoji hand raise and keep your mics muted when others are talking just to avoid any of that background noise or feedback. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and run through our panelists. Obviously, once I call your name, give your little intro, feel free to plug anything you've got going on. We'll start off here with Joseph Wang, our go-to Fed guy. As many of you know, he headed the trading at the Fed's open markets desk and has a great introductory book on central banking called Central Banking 101. And he's the CIO at Monetary Macro. Welcome back as always, Joseph. Hey, Nicholas. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. These are my favorite spaces, and it's great to see all the panelists again. I always learn a lot from them. I do, too. I mean, it's, it, it's really a testament to how much I think I know and how little I actually know anytime I ask you guys questions. So thanks for coming, Joseph. Next, we've got Randy Woodward, a bond investor for 30 years, was working at Bloomberg from 1988 to 95, and now an almost regular to our unusual spaces as well, and a great follow for all things macro. Welcome back, Randy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, I look forward to doing this and catching up with the fellows again. And the only thing I would plug is Joseph's book. You should definitely read Central Bank 101 because I learned a lot reading that. It was very informative. <laughs> Love You're to welcome, hear it, Randy. Joseph. Thank you. And I couldn't agree more. Next, we've got Jem Karsan, a leading volatility expert and founder of Kai Volatility. They're launching a ton of new and innovative things in the coming months, so keep an eye on Kai and check them out. Welcome back, Jem. Excited to have you again. Always good to be here, fellas. Uh, I feel like we've reached the mission accomplished part for the Fed here, uh, and, and I mean that ironically in the sense that they, I could see a lot of that going on while ironically maybe the mission is not yet accomplished. Next, we've got The Last Bear Standing, another frequent friend of our spaces. Last Bear is an expert on the markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. If you're not subscribed to that Substack, please check out his Twitter page and do that. Welcome back, Last Bear. Thanks, guys. Uh, always a pleasure to do these spaces, so looking forward to it. And last but not least, certainly, we've got our incumbent urban cowboy michael cow the chief investment officer and portfolio manager of cow family office and an expert in commodities index arbitrage and dynamic hedging he's also one of the most quotable people on the planet welcome michael oh geez you're too kind um you know you guys do such a great job moderating uh these uh these spaces so i really appreciate being part of it and uh of course all all the panelists all of whom i highly respect so i'm very excited to be here thanks excited to have you thanks for this 
kind, kind words, Michael. And, and I just want to, you know, keep it pretty clear that without you guys, this would be the most awkward space on the planet because I'd be up here floundering, tripping over words without anything to say without you guys. So thanks for coming. So before we get started here, I want to take a quick macro overview of the last month since our last panel. The consumer price index for November showed that overall inflation climbed 0.1% on a monthly basis, making for a 3.1% increase compared to a year earlier. Current dollar GDP increased 8.9% at an annual rate, with real gross domestic product increasing at an annual rate of 5.2% in the third quarter of 2023. Equities, as I'm sure you've all noticed, have remained hot with the S&P continuing its upside rally from October lows as inflation fears seem to dwindle, reaching new highs and many calling for rate cuts to begin much sooner than expected. So with that said, let's jump right into this. Now, Joseph, in your recent Fed Guy publication, Crash Up, you cite near-term positivity in the equity markets and the dwindling attraction to treasuries. You also touch on runaway deficit spending and potential future rate cuts. As you put it, significant upside risk can be created to equity prices. Without giving too much of that publication away, which everyone should be subscribed to, by the way, can you touch on some of this, Joseph, to start us off? Yeah, I, I think what's really changed in the macro backdrop over the past few years is that there's been this huge cultural shift in how we approach government. So, you know, 20 years ago, there'd be a lot of people talking about, we should have a balanced budget, we should not spend too much money. And that those people are all gone now. So if we look at our budget deficit today, like you mentioned, Nicholas, great overview. We, we are on our real GDP, GDP and nominal GDP are surging. And at the same time, uh, our deficit spending is 7% and it's projected to go like this uh, basically without bounds. Now at a high level, when, when I think about deficit spending, you are basically buying goods and services and paying with treasury securities. It's functionally like money printing. And when you do this to a great extent, um, then it's going to be very positive for asset prices and it's going to be um, upward pressure on inflation. So we have this huge, huge backdrop there that, that I think uh, is very bullish for equity markets. But usually when we think about this though, uh, there are pushbacks against it. One, you have the central bank who uh, could raise rates. And secondly, you have the bond market which could actually adjust rates themselves higher. Now, those two factors have been pushing against this tremendous tailwind for equity markets the past year, but it seems like they're fading away. The expectation in the market now is that the Fed will begin to cut rates um, <laughs> maybe up to five times next year. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's the expectation. And you look at the bond market, long bond, 10-year yield, it's all come down significantly. So uh, when you're taking away these things that push against this really big um, tailwind for, for um, inflationary assets, I think then you have a scenario where uh, the risks are bounced towards a crash up. Um, and of course, right now, there's really important options activity as well. And Jim's going to talk about it. It's like magic to me, but uh, it's really important. Thank you, Joseph. So Michael, I'm going to kick it over your way here. You recently tweeted massive easing of FCI Begets resurgent CPI. Who could have seen that one coming? Now, I suspect based on the tone of that tweet, Michael, you did indeed see that coming. So can you kind of walk through your thoughts here, Michael? Well, I've, I've been and still remain in the 
higher for longer uh, camp. And um, I think that the way I look at it is that the we're, we're making a vodka Red Bull here, okay? Um, we've got a combination of uh, fiscal Red Bull being poured on by all of the various spending bills, uh, plus uh, Janet Yellen. Um, and then we've got the Fed trying to administer the monetary depressant. And right now, the fiscal is really overwhelming the monetary. The problem, though, I see is that ultimately it boxes the Fed in. Uh, and, you know, when you add a little bit too much Red Bull into the mix, well, you have to, quote, dilute it with a little bit more uh, vodka. And the end result is the same. Everybody gets wrecked in the end. Um, so that's my quick little vodka Red Bull um, mental model for, for what's happening here. Um, I wrote a piece earlier in the year called The Four Horsemen of U.S. Economic Resilience. And those four horsemen are, um, in no particular order, um, there, I, I believe there are structural and demographic reasons for why the, um, the super core, that, like, for instance, the, the shelter and labor components of inflation are somewhat sticky, um, even though in 2021, I said that, uh, you know, oil is the spark that lit the tinder that, that basically started what I call this inflation conflagration. It's no longer sustaining it. It's being sustained by these four horsemen of economic resilience, the first of which is the structural and demographic component that I mentioned. The, the second one, the largest horseman of all, is this fiscal uh, tailwind. And um, I, I, you know, I think... Uh, Someone posted a, a poll this morning about, you know, where, where I think, where, where a bunch of us think uh, the, dot, the dots are going to end up. And I said, you know, I think I'd, I'd put only a 25% chance of a 50 basis point cut in 2024 and less than 10% of more than that right now. I think the box is, I, I, sorry, I think the Fed is boxed in. And, you know, I, I retweeted a, a something I included I tweeted maybe two months ago saying that, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act have a combined $2.2 trillion of spent fiscal spend earmarked over the next five to 10 years. And as of November, based on what I was able to find, a whopping $16 billion of that $2.2 trillion has been spent. I mean, that is just an enormous flood of fiscal stimulus that's yet to come. So that's only the second horseman. The third horseman is relative rate insensitivity of the U.S. consumer and the U.S. corporate sector. We all know that the, the uh, U.S. homeowner uh, has, is enjoying the, um, the, I think the U.S. has the, one, of the, one of the, if not the lowest percentages of, of uh, floating rate mortgages in the world. Um, and then on the corporate side of things, uh, less than 25% of U.S. corporate debt is floating rate. So, so that's the third horseman. The fourth horseman is relative uh, energy independence. And, you know, I follow oil very, very closely. Um, the U.S. is by, uh, by far the largest producer of oil in the world right now. We're hitting almost 13.3 million barrels per day. So, 
Now, even though oil prices have come crashing down recently and it's no longer an issue for anybody right now, I, I would argue, um, earlier in the year, certainly these uh, the inflationary pressures brought on by by high oil prices were least felt by the U.S. consumer. So the problem here, I think, for the world and for uh, potentially asset prices, uh, eventually long duration asset prices, they certainly uh, are shrugging all of this off right now because everybody thinks that uh, inflation is going to come right back and be boxed in very neatly. I just don't think so. I think that uh, I think that even though oil was the spark that started this, um, it's no longer oil is no longer sustaining the current inflation. And if the Fed does what the market is pricing in, it will simply reignite all, all of this dry tender. So I'm, I'm just going to jump in here if that's okay. Yeah, please. Um, yeah so um, I have a tremendous respect for Michael and uh, we've talked many times and uh, learned so much from him. But I am going to disagree with certain things. I don't think that oil was a spark. I think this has been, uh, and, and other people who follow me will, will know this thought, but I really want to hammer this home. It, it really is something that's been building for some time, and it's really tied to populism. I think everything here, these are different components. If you look on the internet for like what drive the inflation in the 1970s, right, you'll get a bunch of different reasons. And what people don't realize is that they're all connected. And they're all connected to this idea of populism. Monetary policy drove dramatic inequality in the world for 40 years, um, particularly here in the US and the developed world. That eventually, it started about a decade ago, uh, leads to people to this let them eat cake moment. And we've kind of been at that for a while. Uh, you know, Trump bringing the right left was kind of the, the, you know, the initial kind of last step and COVID was the spark. Um, and and fiscal, the fiscal wave that we've experienced, to Michael's point, I'll agree, has been the, the really the driver, but it really is a symptom of something that is much driver, much more structural, that is unavoidable. We have, we have taken the pendulum too far, and guess what, that pendulum is swinging back, and now there's, there's inflation to pay. Um, the things that are all connected are not just the fiscal spending, but the deglobalization that comes from populism. You have a whole generation that's coming to political dominance, millennials on down, who have gone through 40 years of, of underperforming their peers, the boomers. Uh, you know, they're at 40% of the wealth creation, 40% of the house, household formation, and they're saying enough is enough, and they're voting for change, for populist measures. That's not only fiscal spending, that's, that's protectionism. That protectionism drives deglobalization. Populism is people. That means they are local. We don't care about the people of China. We don't care about the people. The people of China don't care about us. Uh, when we're in a monetary-driven system, and it's about corporations, right? It's, it has nothing to do with borders. It has nothing to do with the people of a place. It has to do with profits, and that is much more efficient. So deglobalization means more war, economic war, actual war. Vietnam spending in the 1970s was a huge driver of inflation. Guess what? Spending in Ukraine, spending in Israel, spending in all these different new global war fronts is going to continue to also drive inflation. Commodity scarcity, the competition, OPEC crisis is the 1970s. Guess what? 
OPEC's out there flexing their muscles again. And every other commodity that is centralized in a certain country, that protectionism and that desire to, to, to flex your muscles and get some advantage and competition is another driver of inflation. These things aren't going away. Fiscal spending is not going away. Deglobalization, war, uh, economic, you know, the protectionism, it's not going away. And these are secular forces. Got to wake up to the secular forces. We can talk about the cyclical. We can talk about recession. Is recession here? Is recession not here? 1970s, we had three recessions over the 1970s. Did inflation go away? Maybe for a second. The map is 6% inflation to 3% in the 1970s, 70 to 72. Then that's 12% in 74. Then 6% in 76. Then 15% in 1980. So there, this is a secular structural reality that we're going in. And you can create recessions throughout that and cyclical downturns of inflation. But the important part is what is happening to services, uh, what is happening to, to, to people um, on the ground, and, and where is the money going? And it's going to demand, not supply anymore. Thank you, Jem. Michael and Joseph, I see your hands, but real quick, I want to spin something that Jem brought up to Randy here, and then I'm going to kick it around the whole panel, starting with you two for your thoughts. Now, Randy, Jan Ellen recently said in an interview with Nick Timoral, inflation is, quote, certainly meaningfully coming down, and I see no reason why inflation shouldn't gradually decline to levels that are consistent with the Fed's mandate. She continued, I personally don't see any good reason think that the last mile is going to be especially difficult. Now, Randy, is Yellen correct that inflation is coming down in a meaningful fashion? And kind of as a tie-in, are we on the right trajectory for the soft landing the Fed has been targeting and promoting? Well, I think on the whole, you know, it certainly, you know, measures that inflation has been coming down for quite some time. And, you know, I don't think this morning's PPI report should be ignored. I mean, I it seems it usually is ignored, but you know, I think PPI year over year X food and energy was right at 2%, which is takes us back to when we fell below 2% in late 2019. I don't think that should be ignored as, as, as a metric. Um, you know, for me, and, and the other one too, you know, more myoptically, everybody here seems to be you know, very knowledgeable macro, which I'm probably not nearly as good as they are at this, but I'll just feed on the ground stuff. You know, I think Lacey Hunt's ODL, you know, other deposit liabilities, you know, which is basically just saying available deposits for commerce, you know, for consumers has been coming down dramatically since its peak. I think it's down one and a half to $2 trillion. So I get the money printing and the fiscal spending, but it's not getting to the consumers. Um, And my, you know, as I will remind everybody, you know, my entire career is basically helping banks manage their assets, which is, you know, the bond portfolio and, and you know, loan portfolio as well. They're just all in survival mode right now. Everybody's pulling in, you know, in every, but no one's growing. I got a lot of banks that are shrinking and it's just, you know what, I just want to survive this, whatever's coming. And they all know there's going to be a problem with CRE. You know, I mean, commercial real estate is going to be a problem. And, you know, that's going to rear its ugly head sometime next year. I think we're going to start getting some reality there. So, yeah, my opinion is I think there's a lot of forces out there that are going to have, you know, pressure on prices in general. 
Thank you, Randy. So real quick, Jim, I see your hand as well, but let's start with Michael, then Joseph here. Any continuing thoughts on what Jim and Randy have just said? Let's start, Michael. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to uh, quickly acknowledge uh, Jim and um, Jim's comments and say, Jim, I've learned a ton from you on uh, on your work on the flows. And, um, and um, yeah, I was recently following your debate with uh, Andy Constant. And I come, I come down on your side because I don't want to be that guy that, uh, you know, bases everything on home court bias and, and say that one factor uh, started everything when there are, in truth, many collinear factors, right? And the market is a very, very complex uh, weigh, uh, weighing machine, ultimately. So I agree with all of your comments on the structural, uh, what I call dry tender, 100%. The reason why I pointed to oil as perhaps the spark uh, that let that dry tender, while acknowledging that you know the the reason why the oil oil rallied fiercely in 2021 in the first place was driven by all, a lot of these underlying uh, uh, sort of like a perfect storm of factors coming out of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Um, oil is still the um, it's the most important global commodity in the world. Um, and it's certainly, it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I tend to overweight its importance. And I think that the, the, the rally and it's persist, any persistently high oil prices uh, bleed into a lot of other um, sectors. So, I mean, even if you look at the components of CPI, right? You saw that just mechanistically the, the beginning ramp of CPI was commodity-based inflation. And then, and then now, right, you're actually seeing it be a drag on, on headline CPI, even while a lot of the structural components are now sort of uh, sustaining that, that fire, if you will. So I, I agree with with you 100%. So may, maybe I'll amend my statement by saying it's not it's not the spark. It's it's it, but it was probably the most to me. It was the most visible spark, but perhaps driven by a lot of these same collinear variables that you're talking about. Thank you, Michael. Let's go, Joseph, then Jim, before I kick into the next question. So I want I just wanted to follow up with Jim's point on populism. I think that's really important. And it also touches the central banks as well. So we, we talk about populism being inflationary. Well, we, next, we got to think, what about the central bank? Don't they have a mandate? Uh, but history shows that when you have a big cultural and political shift, the central bank has to uh, bend its knee to that. We can think back to the 70s when we had Arthur Burns. Uh, we all think of him as some idiot who let inflation go out of control. But if you read his writings, a very famous speech called The Anguish of Central Banking, he'll talk about how back then, you know, he could have raised rates significantly, created a huge depression and ended inflation easily. But he couldn't do it because he felt that there was this big cultural and political force, populism, that, uh, that was difficult to push against. So he, he had to relent. Now, when we fast forward to today, as we have more of a populistic culture and so forth, I think that's going to impact uh, central banks here and throughout the world as well. So commonly, if you are an economist, you think of uh, there being a trade-off between uh, employment and inflation. So going forward though, as we become more populist, um, there's gonna be less of a willingness to raise unemployment to get inflation under control, to lower inflation. So 
you can hear hints of people talking about, you know, maybe we should raise the inflation target, right? You hear that being discussed in the Eurozone as you, as you do here in the US. And so that's kind of uh, the Fed central banks being, of course, subordinate to the popular culture, to the politics of our time. Thank you, Joseph. Jim, one last comment here. Yeah, so a uh, couple quick things. Um, you know, we keep looking at uh, inflation as one number, right? And I want to be clear, monetary policy can cyclically slow the economy over short periods of time. You can bring down corporate profits, uh, which will lead to layoffs and have a trickle down um, cyclically. But the problem is that the secular effects will continue, of populism will continue to be at play. And if anything, when you have downturns, you get more fiscal policy and you get more of a different reaction function. It's not about just monetary. Now you have fiscal and monetary stimulating at the same time, which then drives that next wave of inflation secularly. So this is what we see. One is uh, structural and secular, which used to be you know, deflationary and now is inflationary. In the meantime, we have a cyclical uh, push by monetary policy to help try and control runaway inflation, um, but eventually uh, will we'll kind of give, give way. So I think it's an important mental model to think about it that way. Yes, inflation is coming down as a number now. Uh, it seems like a soft landing. When we went from 6% inflation in 1970 down to 25 in, in 1972, amidst that first recession, guess what? Everybody thought that was a soft landing, right? But the point is the next move, one, the Fed had to pivot into a re extended recession uh, was 12% inflation. And I think that's the important point. To Michael's point uh, before, um, yes, oil was the first sign of this inflation, but that was because of the demand push and that came from all the spending, from all the fiscal spending. And I want to be clear, we will get more of that when we get out of the cyclical downturn and they start stimulating again. Oil will run again and it will have the opposite effect. Whereas right now it has been uh, inflation dampening because it's a cyclical factor. Oil tends to be tied to demand. It will be a, um, you know, a stimulating factor to inflation, which will drive significantly higher inflation going forward. Thank you, Jim. Now, last bear, I'm going to pick on you for the next question. But before I get to it, do you have any comments on what the other panelists have said so far, last bear? Uh, no, let's just get right to the question. Sounds great. So the New York Fed, John Williams, has said the stance of monetary policy is quite restrictive indeed. It's estimated to be the most restrictive in 25 years. So last bear, a couple twofer here. Do you agree with this stance? And kind of as a follow up, is a more restrictive monetary policy warranted or is it actually too strict? I guess to start out, I would say I, I don't agree with that stance. I'd say that financial conditions have been easing for almost a year now. Basically, the, the tightest point in financial conditions was maybe last year around this time, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Um, that was uh, back when you had long-term yields sort of spike really aggressively into the fours for the first time. You had 
the uh, BOE issue with the, the guild market, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was also when we were seeing 75 basis point rate hikes um, and there was uh, uncertainty about the path of inflation, how, how fast and how high the Fed was going to go. Um, but because the Fed has so much forward guidance, um, which again, we're going to see today with, with a new dot plot. And because since then, it's been very well sort of telegraphed their ultimate um, you know, destination and, and time period, I think that uh, the market has uh, you know, a pivot here. So um, financial conditions by the Fed's measure has continued to ease. Um, and if you just look at like capital markets activity, like, it, you know, all, all these things are sort of related, but uh, volatility, uh, capital markets, uh, you know, uh, issuance across any number of different categories, IPO windows back on, obviously, there's more animal spirits than they were a year ago. So I, I really don't think that you can just look at um, the absolute level of the federal funds rate and say that that's uh, indicative of what's practically happening to the extent that the channel that you're sort of using to target inflation is um, sort of financial markets and capital market type activity, um, then I, I wouldn't say that that's the case. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's not. Another point on that too, which like you can see as well, right? Like, so, you know, the fact that um, particularly in sort of single family housing um, has held up so well, despite sort of a move from 3% mortgage rates to 8% mortgage rates. Um, and, you know, prices are continue to be on the rise. Um, even despite that, um, there's, there's a lot of sort of real world, world evidence, I think, that suggests that we're not in a restrictive, uh, totally restrictive territory, even though there has been a, a huge move in, in rates. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there real quick. Miss Randy, you know, I I don't know when you talk housing or any kind of real estate, there's just there isn't a lot of activity. You know, obviously, so many homes are going to be off market for a really long time because they got rates at three percent. And I know in you know, I've been watching commercial real estate really, really closely. Nothing's moving. We don't know what the price is. We don't know. And you could say now you might see a, a trophy, you know, OK, that's. Trophies and trash might trade, which is iconic buildings or whatever, or stuff that they know is just going to be a loss forever. So they just go ahead and take the loss. But for the most part, everything's being extended and pretended as far as loans that are supposed to be maturing right now. So I don't think we're having very good price discovery in anything real estate related right now. And I think that's at least in commercial real estate. I think that's what we're going to start seeing next year. And th that's the kind of thing I'm watching to be a big surprise that the Fed's going to maybe have to handle themselves. Thank you, Randy. Right. Joseph, I saw your hand as well. Yeah, I'll just quickly add. So John Williams, president of the New York Fed, he's, <clears throat> he's most no known for his R-star motto, which is a measure to judge whether or not monetary policy is restrictive or not, right? So if you move rates above R-star, you're restrictive. If you move rates below R-star. So, so that's his thing. And uh, when he says that monetary policy is as tight as it's been in 25 years, he's probably thinking of the world through the lens of his model. Now, just to rewind a little bit, all these model people, they were the people who were all in on team transitory and were totally wrong. So this way of looking at the world through, through economic models, I think has a long history of being very, very wrong. But, you know, that, that's kind of who he is. So um, I think it's, I agree with the last bear. It doesn't seem like financial conditions are as tight, are as tight as John Williams describes it to be, uh, but it's important to keep in mind uh, that's how he views the world because he is a uh, you know, influential person in the Fed, uh, well, at least he, he votes. So um, that, that could color your view as to whether or not 
the Fed would become more hawkish or, or dovish going forward. Like, oh, real quick, I, I'll just say in my world of community banking, I, maybe that doesn't mean anything anymore to the United States, but I, I doubt that. I think it's very meaningful. Their conditions of credit is as tight as it's ever been, both of what they can get and what they will provide. And all the regulators, everything they're doing behind the scenes are preparing to make that even worse because they want to avoid more bank failures and more bank stress. So on the ground, you know, you talk to my CRE friends, they, you know, they just, in some cases, they can't get the money. I mean, I got a friend who's in a loan syndicate for a building and the bank that they're supposed to refi it with are like, we don't want the loan. You got to get it somewhere else. And they're like, there, no one wants to give them the money. And so they're, they're in a real pickle. And then these are things that go unseen by the markets because it's, you got to be in the business to see it. So I, you know, in my world of financial community banking, it's as tight as it's ever been. And it's, I think, going to get worse. See a couple hands here. Let's go Michael, then Jim, before I hit the next question. Wow, there's so, there's so much to talk about here. Um, first, let me just say that I, I agree with Last Bear's comments on um, just that, that the financial conditions have eased quite significantly. I think in November, uh, by some metrics, saw like the largest easing of uh, FCI since, gosh, I, I, I don't even, I don't know when, but um, just given what the uh, you know, middle and long end of the yield curve has done, um, you've seen that essentially undo a lot of what the Fed has tried to do at the front end. That's so that's comment number one. Um, but the to to uh, I think last bear's point and uh, and Randy's point on on uh, it, its effect on different sectors. Th there's there's definitely an uneven uh, impact, right? So I think that the the issue here is that the the most interest rate levered components of the economy, as well as, um, you know, glo global commodities that are, that reflect the rest of the world's inab inability to keep up with the Fed are also going to be impacted, which is what you're seeing. Now, I just want to give a couple of quick comments on my earlier comment on the structural and demographic dry tinder. So, um, if you look at a demographic pyramid of of the U.S., what I find fascinating is that after uh, you see like the baby boom generation uh, came Gen X. That's actually my generation, and that, that, that's a relative. Uh, that's at a relative trough right now, and it just so happens that that generation uh, is the current call it forty five to fifty nine year olds uh, that that comprise probably the, the most highly tenured part of the workforce. And I, I think that the fact that that generation is at a relative trough is partially contributing to the, to the labor stickiness. And if you want to talk about the ultimate driver of everything, right? The, the only way that the, that the fed can really engineer a, a, a disinflation. And I, and I would argue perhaps they need to actually engineer a deflation. There's a big difference. Um, is to get aggregate demand down. And to, the only way to get aggregate demand down is to get unemployment uh, meaningfully higher. And it's not happening really yet. 
Um, so that's that's on the that's on the um, employment side of things. Sorry, yeah, on the labor side of things. On the um, shelter side of things, what I find also interesting is again going back to the demographic pyramid. You see that the thirty to thirty nine year old cohort is at a big relative peak right now. And what's significant about that co cohort? It's primary household formation age. So this is the reason why the single family uh, asset class, at least, has held up uh, uh, amazingly well despite what uh, you know mortgage rates have done. Um, I just want to, just last comment on this uh, theme is that I'm invested. I'm invested in a bunch of other hedge funds, um, and um, one of them is a single family resi housing uh, hedge fund. And um, from a couple of months ago, they I got an update and they said that, you know, household formation is still outpacing new construction, construction by 600,000 units per year for the next 10 years. And they still forecast a significant shortage of three to 5 million housing units in the US. And then most recently, I just posted this on the 11th from their Q3 update, they said that after peak to trough after a peak to trough correction of 3% in the second half of 22, U.S. home prices have rebounded to a peak established uh, in June of 22. The new home month supply is now down to 7.8 months, down from a peak of 10.1 months. And this mortgage lock-in effect, ironically, has actually exacerbated the supply shortage. So just, just another... Uh, example of of some of the structural reasons that Jem and I have been talking about. Jem, I see your hand. I'm going to get your comments here, and then I'll I'm, get Randy's comments before a bonds question to Randy. I all, so go ahead. I all but like jumped through the screen to, to <laughs> try to raise my hand as high as possible here. The um, okay, this is the most important point that people can understand. Everybody keeps. 99.9% .9 of the commentary you hear from people, from commentators, from the Fed themselves is about, are we in restrictive territory or not? Is the policy like uh, strong enough to, to drive cyclical uh, demand forces down? It's all missing the biggest part of the <laughs> equation. The Fed does not have the proper tools to stop structural inflation. Actually, ironically, the more they raise interest rates, the more they stimulate structural inflation. Why? Because monetary policy acts from the supply side of the channel. It's not the demand side. When you lower interest rates, you send money to capital. You send money to corporations, to wealthy individuals who send more money to investment in corporations. When you raise interest rates, you take it away from corporations and, and, and the supply channel. So if you're taking money away from supply, which is what we're doing right now, what do you think that's going to do? Maybe not in, the, not in the short term. The short term, it is going to cause a cyclical downturn, right? It's going to slow profits. There's going to be a trickle down to demand cyclically. But structurally, what you're going to do is you're going to drive more, uh, less supply less through both through deglobalization through less technological development all of the things that drove structural deflation for 40 years right are now reversing because the fed is raising interest rates 
Yes, cyclically, you can slow the economy with raising interest rates. But underneath it, you're actually creating a much worse, uh, you know, much worse supply picture. And that's true for real estate, as Michael alludes to, but also it's true for all supply. All the Ubers and Amazons and, 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 and supply that you've been putting on the market through technological development, all of the globalization and opening of China and everything that is driven by lower interest rates, by free money, you're throwing out of the equation. So you're not just not helping secular inflation, you're making it worse. They don't really have a choice because of the fiscal stimulus and the policy. And then all of a sudden the Fed is now asked to step in and intervene, but the Fed cannot fix this. They can address it cyclically, but cyclically, if they do that cyclically, they're only making secular inflation worse. And I think that's the structural part that people need to talk about more not just focus on this two-dimensional inflation number and the cyclical realities. Are we in recession? Are we not? Thank you, Jim. Now, Randy, I saw your hand up there as well. If you wanted to give a few quick comments before I pick on you about bonds. Um, Now, just very quickly, I think, you know, uh, I think it was last person standing on, you know, maybe they got to create deflation. I don't think there's any hell and chance of that. Um, that's, you know, I mean, that's what Bernanke wrote a lot about and all his, when, you know, his talk about Great Depression is you can never allow for deflation because that can, that snowball can get rolling and they can't stop that. Um, and that's, I think, why they have this 2% mandate. But, you know, anecdotally, I think if you can go back, if you can find it, you probably can't, but two or three times someone in Powell's presser has asked about his efforts to bring prices down and he about jumps over the podium. He goes, hold on, hold on, on. That is absolutely what I'm not trying to, what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is bring the pace of inflation down. So he's very, very adamant that I'm not looking to bring prices down. I don't think a lot of people in the, in the world understand that because you get a lot of co- comments on Twitter like, well, prices aren't down. So but that, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, you know, the change in the, the uh, inflation, the prices, pay, goddamn, uh, pace of change. So that, you know, I, I, then that's what I'm always watching for is when is somebody going to really challenge them? I'm going, so what you're saying is all these high prices we're seeing are never coming down. And I think that's, that'll be a challenging question for them. That's what I'd like to see. Right. Can I, can I just jump in real quick, Randy? I want to, I, I want to, I, yeah. I, I just want to point to a, a tweet that I just retweeted. I put it, I shared it into the nest and, um, you know, I, I think this is just worth acknowledging because, you know, when you uh, when you think about the compound effects of three years of high inflation, this is what you get. If you click in, click through to that uh, that uh, chart from uh, Charlie Bellello, I think. Um, so it's a big problem. Um, so I guess that's that's my reasoning for. I, I said that uh, earlier comment about deflation versus disinflation, but just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, that's why they invented the word disinflation. You know, I, I, I've never really ever heard that word used because they don't, they definitely don't want anybody referring to lower prices. That's not what they're trying to do. And it's not what they want. Uh, and and I, I just, there's very few people who understand that. Thank you all. I think really good points to keep in mind here. And so 
One thing I wanted to touch on here because it mostly due to my fault in terms of managing our time during the panels, but we don't really get to talk in depth about bonds all that much given those time constraints. So I'm going to ask a quick question here that hopefully won't bore the audience. Uh, so following the CPI release in the morning, we saw the 30-year bond auction occur. Uh, that was this week as well. The high yield was 4.344%. Versus the when issued level of 4.37%. Now, Randy, I would love if you could give us an overview of why that 30-year bond auction is so important to the markets and what yesterday's auction says about what's to come. Randy? You know, honestly, I don't know who the hell buys 30-year bonds. I, <laughs> I've never sold one in my life. So, that you know, when you look at the 30-year, it's sort you don't even know who's in that game. And I think that's a trader's game. That's not a buy and hold game. Um, and there's so many moving parts to why why the yield goes up, why it goes down, and why, you know, on these auctions, whether it's a good auction or bad auction, you know, we've had a lot of, I've seen reported, we've had a lot of horrible auctions. Oh, my God, a, you know, the worst auction we've seen. And, okay, but, yeah, but the yield's lower than it was yesterday. So, <laughs> clearly you know, the auctions behave one way or another, but in the end, you know, the buyers decide where that's going to go. And, you know, I will say my opinion on bond demand, which I think is important. And, and I think a couple of fellows here said, you know, they see yields going up. I think Joseph has been talking quite a bit about that. All I can tell you is when my banks get money again, they're going to be buying treasuries probably more than they have in their, well, certainly they're in their careers probably more than they have in the last 30, 40 years. Things have changed dramatically. You know, Silicon Bank and, and uh, uh, First Republic and all that, it's changed mentality. It's changed how banks are going to behave going forward. So there's going to be, I can go on and on about all the reasons why, but there's going to be more demand for treasuries and probably a little less demand for uh, mortgages, which could be interesting on its impact on mortgage rates. Thank you, Randy. So you did mention I'm not Joseph sure I answered there. your question. I apologize. But no, I think yeah, I, I think you hit I, the head I, I, and I, that, that initial who's buying this comment really killed me. Yeah, but good good bad I you know in my career there's always good bad auctions. They never really amount to anything. It, it, there's like I said there's so many moving parts in the dynamics of when and how people buy bonds and who's buying the bonds. I just it's never really mattered to me. And it, you know, it never points to any sort of momentum one way or another. I think that's fair, Randy. Thank you. And I, I do want to kick back a little bit here to your mention of Joseph chatting a bit about this because uh, kind of tying back in bonds to inflation, the Fed's Barkin recently said, quote, uh, on the topic of a target range, he said, I'm open to an inflation target range once we hit our 2% goal. And Joseph, you did have some comments on that in your recent Twitter posts saying shifting to a target range is how the inflation target will be moved higher. And that long bond under 5% is crazy in your opinion. So Joseph, just to kind of tie back to what Randy was saying as well, if you'd like, I'd love you to touch on each of these comments for our listeners today as well. Yeah, I, I agree with Randy. I have no idea where all these people are buying these 30 year bonds. I'm guessing it's insurance companies or someone who's trying to manage the liabilities. So, you know, right now we have an inflation target of, of 2%, right? So that means that if inflation is at 2.5%, that's above target, we got to do something about it. 
But if you move to an inflation band, which from what I understand, there is growing support for this within the Fed, then that's a whole nother game. It's very much similar to changing the target. So let me explain. Let's say that you have an inflation band that is 1.5 to 2.5% instead of just 2% target. That means when inflation gets down to 2.5%, well, mission accomplished, I don't have to do anything. So in a sense, you are shifting the inflation target from 2% uh, to 2.5%. And uh, just an aside, I, I totally agree with Randy's comments earlier that you know, when we're talking about stable prices being the mandate for the Fed, well, you know, that, that's not the same as having a stable inflation rate, right? Prices stably go up 2%. If you were someone who bought something a few years ago, well, well the price level went up uh, 20%, 30% in a few years. It's never going to come down. That's not stable prices. Even if the inflation rate goes back to 2%, you know, unless you get some decrease in the price level, that, that's not stable prices. So this interpretation is strange. But that's how it's being interpreted. And in the future, though, if there was a way to raise the inflation target, I think that's how they would do it through a band, because it sounds a lot less, um, I don't know, a lot less like they're moving the goalposts, like they're just kind of changing things around a little bit. But looking at all these huge secular forces that we've been talking about, uh, like populism, like tremendous deficit spending, things like that, that's that, that's difficult for me to see how how um, the inflation would remain around 2% and how the 30-year bond, where it is, 30 years is a long time. It makes sense. Hey, Joseph, you can help me with this. I forget the lingo, but do you remember, you know, in 1819, where Powell, where they were talking about, hey, we've been under 2% for so long, we're going to need to, what is it, like average it? There's a certain unique little way he put it. We need to let it run above 2% for a certain period of time. So the, on average, it's 2%. Do you remember what he, how he explained that? Yeah, that's average inflation targeting. That was a change in the yeah. Fed's framework in 2020. Yeah. I, I'm sure they've more than made up of it now. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but they're never going to, I don't think they'll ever say, well, it's been so high for so long, we can go below 2%. Fact is, they don't want to be anywhere near zero. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's their nightmare scenario. And, you know, so I think that whole targeting thing, you'll never hear them say that again. It was, it, it was to their you know, own use back then, but they changed their mind on that one for sure. You're right. It's not, it's not, it's, it's asymmetric. It's not symmetric. So they're not going to run periods of deflation to make up. Thank you guys. Really good explanations there. And I do kind of want to just kind of continue down this vein for a little bit. I think about 15 minutes until we get some numbers. Uh, so as a follow-up here, last bear, uh, have you ever bought the 30-year? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I, I am curious, last bear, could you maybe touch on why this month's high-yield rate of 4.344% comes across much more favorably than last month's 4.769%? The tail this month was negative 0.3 basis points which many viewed as encouraging from what the reading I was doing. Many viewed that as encouraging for the bonds market, given last month's auction with that tail of 5.3 basis points. So from your point of view, Last Bear, and, and Joseph and Randy, feel free to chime in here as well after Last Bear, what does the drop in high yield rates say about investor sentiment for bonds? And kind of what do you see for the future of yields in 24? 
That's a great question. Um, I think with respect to the auction, I mean, that's just su supposed to be an indication of relative demand. Um, having a, a large tail is bad. Having a negative tail would be a good thing. And particularly given that um, there's been a lot of focus around the treasury issuance and the size of that, the size of particularly long dated treasury issuance that might be coming after the, the debt ceiling, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that there was a heightened focus around those and maybe it got more attention than than typically it might for, for a normal auction. Um, but I do think that it is interesting that it was sort of the peak of concern around um, treasury issuance um, probably coincided with the peak in yields. And since then, uh, yields have come off pretty substantially um, on the long end, as we've seen um, some encouraging inflation data, as well as uh, some sort of weakening economic data, if you look at sort of GDP forecasts, that sort of thing. Um, so. I think that maybe on the auction point, just it, it does go to show that um, there is uh, plenty of capital available for uh, the U.S. government to borrow money um, so long as uh, investors are uh, seeing that as being a good investment proposition, which for long duration assets, obviously, there's a carry component or the interest rate component, but there's also the direction of rates and the sensitivity to, um, you know, duration. So the, the to the extent that investors view uh, interest rates as being lower um, or coming down over the coming year, um, then the absolute uh, you know, yield of these bonds is maybe less significant than the opportunity for principal appreciation uh, for, for long duration assets like that. So um, I think, uh, you know, on the flip side, if investors uh, expect rate, you know, rate hikes to continue going forward, um, and those look like poorer investments, there's obviously less demand, but um, I don't think that there's a lack of total capital available. I think it's more about um, whether investors view those um, in an attractive way, given the sort of the monetary dynamics. Thank you, Les Bear. I see some hands here. Let's go Michael, then Randy, before I move on to the next question. Um, I want to call attention to another thing I just uh, put into the nest, which I think is kind of interesting because I was studying the rate height cycle of the late 70s. And, and you know, I posted this when, you know, uh, yields were at their peak, right? And to, to kind of put into context the, the relative bear steepening that we saw compared to what we saw during the periods of 79 through 82. And so what you see, let me just walk through this somewhat busy chart. Um, what you see here is that in so so the bottom uh the bottom the red and the blue are were, were the uh the recent bear steepening that we saw at, at peak yields right so then i basically posted uh the yield curves from i just picked an arbitrary date january 1st of 79 80 81 and 82 and so so what you see is that during that period where where uh, the front end, the Fed was hiking the front end very, very aggressively, right? You saw a similar type of uh, stair-stepping happen where the front end uh, would, would go up, get jacked up, uh, you know, via Fed funds. And then maybe after a period of time, the long end would adjust and, and basically bear steepen. But I want to call your attention to the the orange line at the very top what happened in 82 because by, by the time 82 rolls around right the economy is deep into recession and the fed actually cut 
right? You see the Fed funds go way down, right? But look at what the long end did. The long end completely blew out in a, I guess, a combination of a bull and bear steepener at that point. And I point this out because I see this as a potential danger here for the Fed if they prematurely cut. Because I think what the bond market was saying at that point in 1982 was, you know what, the... In, inflation expectations have basically gotten out of the bag and we don't believe that you can stuff that genie back in the bottle. And I think that's basically what happened in 82. So I, I think here, this is totally relevant to, to the, the feds forward uh, guidance and what they might do in, in terms of communicate via the dots today, because I think that if they make the mistake of a premature cut, I actually think the long the long end is going to get crushed. That's my view. Thank you much, Randy. I saw your hand there as well. Please feel free to chime in. <clears throat> yeah, just uh, back on the thirty year. So this is something everybody should know. Um, if it, if you haven't read and followed Mike Green from Simplify Asset, you should. And what you want to do is listen to his thesis on passive investing and inequities. It's it's it completely changed my thoughts on how equity prices move and whatnot. And you, you got to look into that. However, it was like a year or two after I was reading it. One day he said, yeah, this is bonds too. And I was like, oh, holy shit, I didn't even think about that. So let's go look at an old 30-year. Treasury 3% of 215.49. Guess the three largest holders outside the Federal Reserve, which they own a lot. BlackRock, Fidelity, uh, and Vanguard. Meaning that their index funds, uh, whatever long bond index fund, you put a dollar in there, it has to go to that the, that treasury. It's got to go to long treasuries. So there's no thought, there's no analysis, there's no nothing, there's no trading. You give them a dollar, and it's going to get dispersed, and it's going probably going to go to the one they own the most because it's kind of a market cap situation. That's where the money's going to go. So, you know. And, and also, I think, you know, I, someone just mentioned this as far as price appreciation. I think that's that's a trader, right? That's who's buying these things is they're kind of gambling on. I think the you know Fed's going to cut and rates are going to come down. And you're going to get good price appreciation. But I don't I don't think there's any really not meant. Well, Lacey Hunt's probably the only person who buys 30 year treasures, which he's done for his entire career. But outside that, I don't know anybody else who does. But but point being, passive income's going into those long bonds. Thank you, Randy. Does anybody else on the panel have any comments before I pick on Jem some more? All right. So, Jem, as always, it would be criminal to not pick your brain about the VIX. So, as of this month, the VIX is trading as its lowest point since before the COVID pandemic and is down around 48% year to date. So, Jem, could you give us a little insight into the implied volatility of the markets? And additionally, is load excuse me, is low implied volatility any indication of future rate cut projections? So uh, no to that last question. Um, the primary drivers of implied volatility uh, at this juncture are structural. They're structural to the vol markets themselves. Um, They're structural to uh, seasonal uh, factors and flows um, happening in the market at this time. Uh, you got to have to always remember that implied volatility is a function of time. 
if the market stands still for a, a month, uh, but prices don't move, implied volatility will go higher. Um, implied volatility levels are also, and this is a part that many people do not understand, but is very important, are also a function of moneyness um, in the market. You know, the higher strikes in the market have lower implied volatilities and lower strikes have higher implied volatilities. The demand or pricing of, of options can just simply not change and the market can go down and, and implied volatilities and the VIX will go up. It has nothing to do with demand or supply of um, volatility. So there's a lot of elements here that people just simply don't understand. A 20% rally, more importantly, a 12% uh, rally or whatever it is off the bottom, uh, the recent bottom in the last month or so, month and a half, um, naturally slid us to really low implied volatilities. And the more we continue to rally, the more that implied volatility is low. But as I I've mentioned on many, many platforms for uh, a month and a half, two, like two months now, demand in the form of structural end of the year reflexive um, uh, you know, re-collateral investment uh, is, is a major seasonal driver of the support and demand in this market. Um, and as that comes into the market, continues to, to be, force people risk on, uh, especially into an end of year uh, squeeze where people have to perform. Um, is is also a major, major driver. So every day that this market goes higher, uh, we slide naturally to a lower implied volatility. At some point, you're so stretched um, that uh, you're hitting up against two standard deviations, three standard deviations up on, on monthly charts. But the pace is so fast that people are willing to write calls or to sell, create supply, not to mention there becomes more and more reflexive action from like we're going to see today from the Federal Reserve, from the treasury that are going to try and slow it down and talk down the market. And all of these things end up being a push and pull a macro versus flows, like I mentioned, that helps to compress volatility. Lastly, I think maybe the most important piece of this is that December quarterly, which we're coming into that expiration here this Friday morning, is by far the biggest expiration for structured products, for volatility issuance. It's been leaps. It's been on the market for a dramatic amount of time. And so it is, a, uh, it, it is easy for uh, sophisticated options traders and dealers to go sell that volatility, which is significantly higher and has short open interest, and it's going away, and use that to fund volatility behind it, uh, which is much cheaper so as this expiration goes away, everybody is getting handed cheaper implied volatility behind it. Not only is it cheap, but it's, it, they're getting a credit on what's going away. So they're getting handed it incredibly cheap. Uh, you know, Vol, I can own the January 3rd uh, upside calls on an eight implied volatility. And I can fund that without the money strangles that are very high up to my margin levels and Friday expiration. That gets me into a six volatility in these calls. When those supply demand dynamics exist in the marketplace, when you're able to get these incredibly low implied volatilities, it is a structural reality that the world is decaying longer and longer implied volatility. And when everybody's getting handed more and more supply of implied volatility at a low level, that means implied volatility is, doing, is going to go lower. And that is what we have been seeing. 
Thank you, Jim. I think we're getting our numbers here. And then I definitely want to circle back to some more volatility questions as well. But I'm just going to give folks a few minutes here to kind of digest what we're seeing. Again, the report should have just dropped. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too far. Looks like we are sitting on another pause, which I think was pretty wildly, ex excuse me, widely accepted and expected. If anybody has any comments here while check we're digesting, out, feel check free. Check out the dots. I might be wrong on this, but let me make sure I got it right. Let's see. Last time they were 2024, they had it at 515. If you average them all out, that's now down to 4, 465. So it looks like they've been dropping. I'm going to compare. Yeah, the, the dots look substantially lower right, so across this the board. Is so last time there was only penciled in two cuts for next year, and now it looks like it's closer. Uh, it's, you know, three cuts now. So this is a realization that inflation hey, has made tremendous problems. Yeah. And hey, guys, just this is something that I don't know how everybody is on this, but it's it's a fact. The CME, uh, FedWatch, they don't do the math right. So their probabilities are absolutely wrong. I actually and, had a question geared for that, so please do go over that. Yeah, it, it, and it's, it, it shows itself at inflection points. So in, I can, if anybody wants it, I, Bloomberg wrote about this. So back in 18, 2018, uh, Bloomberg and, and uh, CME were using what's called conditional probability, where basically you have a max of 100%. And that forces percentages into buckets they don't belong. And when, uh, you know, say rate cuts, when you start to get to these cuts, you're getting closer to it. It pushes the percentages to places like, you know, oh, you know, there's a 20% says it's going to be three cuts by this time. Well, that's just absolutely 100% wrong. So the May is the one, May, May meeting is the one you want to focus on. But, uh, so anyway, in 18, Wall Street went to Bloomberg and see me and said, you're doing it wrong. Here's why you're doing it wrong. And Bloomberg realized, oh, we're doing it wrong. So they changed how they did it and corrected it. CME, for whatever reason, has not. And it shows up at inflection points. So we're going to see that in cuts. And when you get into May, that's where CMA just goes bonkers. So May right now for WERP, uh, World Interest Rate Probability on uh, Bloomberg, is trading at basically 118, which is 100%. I actually started to say, instead of probability, I probably should say severity, 100% severity that there's going to be a cut at that meeting. And the 18.2.182 is 18.2% that of a second 25 basis point cut. CME at that meeting, uh, let's see, let me make sure I got May. Yeah. They have right now, let me refresh it. Let me make sure because it's, it's changing as we, uh, as we speak. Well, a little bit ago, they, they had the, they have 22, 20.2% 20 that they remain where they are right now. Well, that, that, that's absolutely not what the Fed funds futures are trading at. They don't, it, it's, they're trading at zero that rates are going to be right where they are right now. And that, so that's already immediately wrong. And that's where, you know, and then they have 49 with one cut, 29% with two cuts, 
they actually have 1.2% with three cuts. All wrong, all wrong, all wrong. And to make it worse, they got a 0.3% chance of a hike. And, and that's just, that's the air of what conditional probability uh, produces into these numbers. So it, it's frustrating for, you know, I, Bianco, I finally had to correct him. And he was like, well, why the hell are they doing this? Like, what about people who don't have Bloomberg's? I'm like, I know. I mean, we've tried to contact CME, they just won't change it. But if you want the literature, DM me your email and I'll send it to you. And they, Bloomberg does a much better job educating you on how that works. Hell yeah. Thank you, Randy. Last spare, did you have some comments here as we digest? Yeah, sorry. I'm unmuted. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, this is a, a big shift in the dots downward um, across the board uh, from the last September meeting where, where they had dots. And obviously, you're seeing that in the equity market um, right now uh, with market up about half a percent since that's come out. But I just want to emphasize that, I, I mean, I'm somewhat surprised by how much of a move this is since since September, which only three months ago. Um, if you look at their inflation numbers or their inflation expectations, those have come down um, slightly. Growth is about the same. Um, so clearly, uh, the, from the Fed's perspective, um, there's been a big shift. And I, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that it's that large. And I'm not sure what kind of data or you know, what, what was the driving factor of that, whether it's concern around uh, the weakening labor market and, and sort of balancing the risks on the downside, or whether it's because of just higher degree of confidence in, in the rate of inflation. But um, I think no one was expecting any sort of real surprise, but this is a, a big shift in the dots. You see it in the uh, across the yield curve, 10 bips down. Obviously, the equity market um, is up a lot, too. So um, it's uh, it, it's an interesting, interesting for what was supposed to be a not interesting uh, report here. Any other comments here on the change in dot plots or anything else that you've seen? Yeah. As you digest? So let me say real quick. So you guys, I don't know who here would know about this, but about six months ago or so, and this is, doesn't happen that often. And, and I'm sure Joseph saw it. The Fed, the OCC, uh, the NCUA even, and the FDIC, they sent out a combined statement to all banks and credit unions. And what it said was, is, Hey, um, in, in this time of stress with commercial lending, um, you know, extending the term of the loan to give time to heal and to, you know, basically fix some of these issues that these borrowers are having, um, they're going to, pr they promoted it. And then they gave about a half a dozen examples of, okay, so let's take this loan. And, and basically what it was is they were saying, hey, Normally, if you redefined, you know, if you extended a loan and it turns out that that went from a 70 LTV to a 110 LTV, normally that would be a bad thing because th that's you're taking on too much risk there. They were saying we're going to be OK with that. And they went through all these examples explaining why they're going to be OK with that. My opinion was they clearly feel rates are going to come down next year. And it's like, guys, give them time. Rates are going to be lower next year. A lot of the problems these people are having will be not not fully alleviated, but it'll be less so because um, they're not. I don't think they're ever going to the rates they were, and, and particularly they'll never have cap rates as low as they will they were, and they will never do you know seventy five, eighty five percent LTV lending in that structure either in that world. So anyway, that's what I I think that's 
totally the dots fit right in with what I was thinking when I saw that directive from all the regulators. Thank you much, Randy. Any other comments, maybe Joseph or Jim or Michael? Um, I, I do think one element that is going to become interesting over the coming year is what happens with QT. Um, I know we've, you know, we've talked about rates a lot. I don't think we've mentioned balance sheet dynamics at all, um, Fed's balance sheet dynamics. But um, I think particularly given this sort of dovish um, read through from the dots and, and just sort of obviously long anticipated rate cuts, it will be interesting to see um, you know, the questions begin to start on QT. And so there's still 500, 700 million in the, in, or 700 billion in the reverse repo facility that's still needs to sort of, that's excess liquidity, so to speak, that still um, can come out and that will continue to support QT for, um, you know, much of the coming year to the extent that they want to extend that. Um, but it will be interesting to see um, something to watch if they, you know, if they make any uh, comment or um, change that policy in, in the coming year, because I think a lot of the dynamics that Randy's referenced throughout this, the, the bank dynamics are, are really important dynamics to understand, which is that, um, you know, there was a huge explosion in, in the size of um, basically bank balance sheets, which was a result of Fed's quantitative easing and sort of, over, you know, during the period of COVID. Um, well, it was more so that stimulus. Been, that, well, I, I think it had, I mean, the, the shit, man, the amount of money they sent out for just yeah, direct how deposits. Funded? How is well, that funded? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Good point. Right. You're right. So, Indirectly, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, so, but I think the government demanded it and the Fed's like, all right, I guess we got to fund it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but I, 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 I totally agree with you. Agree with that. But, but so, and that's been on the down, like the downward trend for, for the past year and a half or so. Um, and that's, you know, the fact that all these banks are actually shrinking in size. It's a very unusual situation. That's why they're so tight on credit. Um, you know, that's why uh, you have the credit, the sort of organic credit channel slow down the way that it has. Um, but that's not really a sustainable long-term sort of path. And so eventually that line should start moving up again. Um, it's kind of stabilized. And that's been a, you know, a policy decision as they tried to sort of tame inflation. But moving forward, um, I think that there's going to be uh, more of an inclination to get that into a more normal place, which is sort of gradual and steady growth as opposed to a uh, large increase and then sort of the subsequent decrease we've seen over the past year or so. Yeah, I'll tell you this, man, you know, with all the money that they put at these banks and the banks, you know, look, you can't just sit on cash. There's a lot of reasons why you can't just sit on cash. Got the money in loans, they got it in bonds, and then turn around, you jack rates up and you have a bunch of bank failures, they're never falling for that again. So, I mean, that, 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 you know, that trick's dead. So if they, I'm thinking when they do have to stimulate and they will one day have to stimulate, they're going to have a hard time getting banks on board because you just, you just screwed the hell out of them this year and they're not going to let you do that to them again. All right. If nobody has any other comments on the initial release here, I'll mention something. So, yeah, please. as was mentioned, as was mentioned before, this is uh, clearly a dovish meeting, dovish statement. The reason it's dovish is because last time, last September, you were pricing in two cuts for 2024, and now you're pricing in three. And that largely seems to be because inflation has been progressing, disinflation has been progressing faster than expected, right? So. Uh, you can see in the 2023 core PC inflation, it's 3.2 rather than 3.7. Now, the second part of this that, that I think is also dovish, but also very interesting, is how the committee views their quote-unquote R-star. That is to say, 
the longer run level of where interest rates will be. Now, over the past year, there's this R star, this longer term Fed funds rate projection has been creeping higher. So there there's, was more of a belief on the committee that maybe there's something structurally different in the economy such that going forward, inflation could be structurally higher. And so maybe rates will have to be structurally higher as well. Now that person or group of people seems to have uh, gone back to thinking that the future will look like the past. And so um, you see that that uh, longer run Fed funds rate kind of come down hey, a bit jo- in, in the brackets. Joseph, r- real quick, on, on those dots, like let's just say 25, is that where they think they'll be by the end of 25 or the beginning of 25? End. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. And I think the last bear is makes a really good point in that going forward now the focus is going to be what how the Fed will handle their balance sheet. So historically speaking, Fed has this dogma where they don't want to do different things with the balance sheet and the policy rate. The thinking is you don't want to step on the gas and the brake at the same time. Now, there's been more and more discussion within the Fed. It's seemingly more of a minority now, but still some discussion that maybe even as we cut rates next year, we could continue to let QT continue because what we're doing is that we're not so much changing the stance of policy, but we're just normalizing things. So as we normalize policy, it would make sense to let the balance sheet continue to run off so that uh, we're just normalizing the balance sheet as well. Um, my expectation is, is this, this group actually gains ascendance since we have more and more stability in the bond market at the moment. So I think the Fed gives the Fed some space to actually continue to run down their balance sheet, even as they cut rates to tailor monetary policy in line with lower inflation. Thank you all. So we've got about 15 minutes, I believe, until Jerome Powell's presser. And there's one thing that I did want to touch on uh, that Last Bear mentioned a little bit ago. And I'm going to pick on you again here, Joseph. So Last Bear mentioned that many voiced a concern recently regarding that of the RRP hitting zero. Now, according to Lynn Alden, the RRP reaching zero signals an end of an excess cash regime, which couldn't, excuse me, which wouldn't necessarily cause instantaneous issues. She goes on to say, however, that if Fed QT continues to persist and the RRP is drained, there could potentially be serious consequences in liquidity and elevated risk in the money market. So let's start with Joseph and then kick it around the panel here. Is this concern warranted? As the RRP dwindles, are we at risk of liquidity issues? And does anyone actually care? So the way that I think of it is that when the RRP is at zero, and that means that short-term interest rates will start to go up. So if you have money in the RRP, let's just, for example, earning 5%, then whenever interest rates elsewhere in the market, say treasury bills or, or private repo go above 5%, then you take money out and you lend it there because you can earn better than 5%. Now, when the RRP is zero, that means that, so because of this, interest rates are, are pinned or at least pulled towards the RRP offering rate. Now, when the RRP is zero, then that ceases to be an anchor for short-term interest rates. And so they can drift higher. Now, if you look, let's say the past few years, the RRP has been zero, you know, before the pandemic, it was zero. So it's it's not a big deal. What that just means is that short-term interest rates go higher 
until they find the next lender. Now, the next lender is probably going to be the commercial banks. And so you would think short-term interest rates, let's say repo, let's say T-bills drift above interest on reserves, which is what the commercial banks earn on their deposits at the Fed. So I think it's just, for me, it means that the interest rates go higher a little bit. And however, if the commercial banks uh, get tapped out, then you can have some, I think, more volatility and, and some, uh, as Lynn mentioned, you kind of run out of money in, in some parts of the market. But I think that's just some ways away. Hey, Joseph, can they, they can never, if that short-term rate started going up, if repos started going up, they got to go back in because SOFR is sourced primarily off repos. And if they're going to control SOFR, they have to, con- got to ring fence rates. So they got to have repo ready to go and they got to have reverse repo ready to go. Don't you think? Well, I think we'll re- I think it can go, let's say, above IOR, around IOR, and it'd be fine. I think that the problem would, would emerge if it went a lot higher or became very volatile. I don't think that's going to happen right away. You, you would have to exhaust the commercial banks first. So I, I think it has room well, to go did. up to 10 basis points. I'm, I think you'd agree. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thinking that they thought in September 2019 when repo went all blue to hell. And that's what I'm just saying is like, hey, they'll jump. If they got to jump back in, they'll jump right back in. They may let it move around in a range. But if it starts to you know, whack out SOFR again, there's no way. I mean, that, that's, that's the metric they want to control more than anything in the world. Well, remember, though, we also have something new called the standing repo facility. And that makes uncontrollable spikes very unlikely. Okay. What about the floor? What, what facility controls so it won't go too low? The reverse repo facility. Right. Okay. That's what I'm thinking. And that's why I thought, well, you know, I know it was small, but, you know, so for spiked what uh, uh, last Friday or something like that. And they threw, you know, I think they threw 200 million into repo, which was the most since, you know, they were correcting it back in 19. Everybody's like, ah, it doesn't mean anything. It's just 200 million. I, to me, that was the message, boys. We'll go right back in if we need to, but get that goddamn rate back down because we're not letting you, you know, move this index too far away from where we want it. Great discourse there, Randy and Joseph. Thank you. Last Bear, did you have some comments there as well? Yeah, so I, I, I would tend to agree a little bit more. I, I think those are all good points. I tend to agree a little bit with uh, with Lynn's comments that you referenced, um, which is that it is um, very noteworthy um, if, if you the, to sort of follow the reverse repo dynamics. So basically since June of this past year, um, till now you've probably had something on the order of 1.5 trillion dollars come out of the reverse repo facility and into either commercial banks or effectively sort of shredded in qt Um, and so that's allowed qt to basically be sort of a non-issue this year um, because it's basically getting funded from money that was sort of sitting at the fed anyways Um, so if you think of that as sort of an overflow facility um, we've sort of drawed down about 75% or maybe a little bit less than that um, in the course of six months. Um, and so once you get down to zero, if that happens sometimes, you know, in, in the coming year, um, there's potential for more um, rate volatility on the short end, which is what these guys are referencing. Um, but there's also issues for the banking sector as well, to the extent that QT was to continue and basically take reserves 
only out of the banking sector as opposed to the reverse repo facility, then you start to have liquidity pressure on, on banks um, that uh, for all the, you know, how Randy's talking about how challenging it is for sort of the banks right now, um, they've actually uh, benefited slightly over the past couple of months of sort of increased liquidity because money is coming out of the reverse repo facility and into the banking sector. So once that, once that sort of, you know, overflow facility gets drawn down to zero, um, and to the extent that QT continues, then it will start taking money out of the banking sector, um, which will put further pressure on these sort of banks. So I think that that's, um, there's sort of a concept called uh, the lowest comfortable level of reserves um, in, in the commercial banking sector that the Fed focuses on when making their balance sheet decisions. Um, and I think that that's, those are all going to be the dynamics that they're considering um, as they sort of make their plans with QT, uh, because that's sort of the, the the big risk out there with sort of extending QT for an extended period of time is that you end up having a blowout in rates or having some issues with banks. Thank you, Last Bear. So we've got about eight minutes before the presser. So what I want to do here is kind of go around the panel, get some closing thoughts, and please plug anything you've got coming out that people should be checking out here before we get into the presser. Jim, I see your hand. Let's go ahead and start with you, Jim. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say one thing about liquidity. I mean, I think it's very important that that spike in SOFR happened at the end of the month um, and that spoke to kind of this this need uh, for liquidity at the end of the month. Um, end of the year is even bigger. Um, so I'll be very curious to see what happens here at the end of the year with uh, with this liquidity situation. I think that's something to highlight, to kind of look for. Um, I do think it's a bit of a canary in the coal mine. Again, I'll, I'll always seed uh, kind of the, the plumbing to, uh, to Joseph here. But, um, but I am concerned about liquidity after the first of the year. I do think that that date matters. So I'll just leave that there and, and we can shelve that for another conversation. But, but I, I do think early next year is going to be an interesting time for supply. And I do think the Fed will be pushed back in. Uh, through one of these facilities to try and provide liquidity to the treasury. And I think that that could very well um, be kind of an interesting dynamic to markets. Uh, in terms of uh, us, uh, you know, find me on Twitter uh, here at Jim underscore croissant, chivolatility.com uh, backslash news. If you want to subscribe to kind of our thoughts and our media. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, I think we're approaching a really important window, as I've highlighted in a lot of other venues uh, here in early January, January 17th in particular. Uh, the new year, we'll, we'll see the end of some of these structural flows that I've highlighted. And I think uh, the next uh, you know, level up here is market up, vol up, uh, and that tends to unpin vol and create more dynamic, uh, dangerous situations for markets. So something to watch. Uh, higher is not necessarily better for, um, you know, if this, this thing goes too far, too fast, um, it ends up being a very dangerous situation for markets, as we've seen many other times in the past. Thank you, Jim. Definitely check out Kai Volatility, guys. Up next, Michael, any closing thoughts here? Anything you want to plug before we head into the presser? Sure. Um, I, I guess I'll end with what I started with, which is that I think that ultimately I'm surprised by these uh, dovish dots as much as anybody else. Um, but it's important to remember that in the end, the Fed is a monarchy and not a democracy. And um, my own view is that um, I'm, I'm going to be very, very attentive to what um, happens to financial conditions as a result of this. And I have a I have a sneaky suspicion that this will be self 
defeating and that uh, we're, we're at a later FOMC, we're going to see uh, the dots migrate back up. And uh, I can be found at uh, Urban Cowboy, the KAO, and my Substack is urban uh, urbancowboy.com. Thanks for having me. Thanks as always for coming, Michael. Next, last bear. Anything you want to plug? Any closing comments here? Um, no no uh, closing comments, but um, if you like anything that I say here, you can follow me here on Twitter um, and check out my Substack. I put out a post every Friday. So um, check that out. Check it out, folks. A lot of valuable info in last bear. Randy, anything you wanted to say here before we push these folks into the presser? Yeah, real quick. Um, so Zoltan has got his new release today. So, and he does talk about RRP. So if you have $30,000 a year, you too can get his commentary. I don't get it. So just thought I'd let you all know. Um, let's see here. Uh, the only other thing I would say is um, there's a new book out called Rigged. Um, by Andy Verity, by he's the BBC financial reporter. Uh, everyone in finance should read that book. It's all about the LIBOR scandal and everything that you've been told. And I completely agree with this is, is all bullshit that, you know, there are a bunch of scapegoats that the powers that be needed uh, so they could kill LIBOR and take this index over, which is now SOFR. So I highly recommend that book. It's fantastic, well-written, some of the characters in there are on Twitter um, and some are not because they're just still too distraught for spending time in jail. But I uh, highly recommend that book. Thank you much, Randy. And thank you as always for coming and giving us some of that bond feedback. I know we, uh, we missed touching on that on a couple of these in the past. So it was really nice to touch on that in depth today. Joseph, anything you want to say, sending these folks into the press are here in about three minutes. Well, first, I'll just briefly address the point made by Jim and Randy. So on month ends, definitely there, there's less liquidity in the repo market, but I wouldn't worry about it because it's something that happens all the time. So it, it kind of stopped for a couple of years. But if you look, let's say before 2019, it, it actually used to happen every month end. So uh, I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. And, you know, standing repo facility, it's there. There's a test trade. My guess is about 200 million. So I, I wouldn't worry about that either. I, Joseph, uh, I, I'll push back real quick. I just, you know what? <laughs> Sofer didn't exist in 2019. I mean, I think it's a whole, now that now that they chose repo to represent the market in Sofer, I, I just, I, I would, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that, but I, I think it's a different ballgame now. Sorry, guys, I cheated. Sorry. <laughs> Got it. All right. So anyway, um, I have a YouTube channel, Joseph Wayne. Check it out. I will put a FOMC debrief on it after the FOMC. And also, I actually went on cable news yesterday and told everyone that I thought the meeting would be dovish and that there would be three hikes penciled in. So I'm actually happy with this outcome. And you can see that interview on my YouTube channel. So check it out. Check that out for sure, folks. Again, thank you to all of our panelists today. If you're not following them, you absolutely should be. All of them have very in-depth experience keeping an eye on the macro landscape and kind of what's going on you know, in the Fed and commodities. So if you're not following these folks, if you're not subscribed to their sub stacks, please do that. You're missing out on a lot of good information. And all of these folks up here and all the folks we've had up here break things down in a very easy-to-understand way. And I, I don't say that lightly. If I can understand it, you guys can understand it too.
We won't be having another space this year. This is the last one of 2023, so I hope everybody has a phenomenal holiday season and new year going into 2024. Thanks for coming, folks. 